Hello, friends, and welcome back to the dinner table. I'm so glad to have you all here, and I'm also so glad to have my friends Michael and Crystal here with us today. Thank you guys for being here. Yeah, no problem. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming and having dinner with me. I have appreciated our friendship that has been developing over the years um, through the farmer's market, beekeeping, all the things that you guys do, and I'm looking forward to digging into that a little bit more. But I wanted to bring up to the dinner table, everybody hasn't heard yet the episode with Andrew Edelin because it was pre-recorded and it's going to come out when I go on my trip because I'm, I don't know if you guys have heard yet, but I'm going on a solo road trip, round trip to Michigan to visit my friend Tommy. And, um, and so we pre-recorded some episodes and his was one of the ones we pre-recorded and, um, he had his first baby just the other day. How exciting. I know. I'm really happy for him. Um, and one of the things that we, I thought was really interesting and fun about the conversation with him, cause he's a, he's young, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. he's older than I was when I had my first kids or when I had both my kids actually, but he's still just, you know, it's his first kid and he's super excited and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you could tell that he was like, uh, yeah, I'm going to come and we're going to record the podcast. And then he, he would say, but if the baby comes and I'm like, Oh buddy, you got a ways to go. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> and it turned out, uh, they'd, they'd mentioned in their post about it, that the baby was born at 41 weeks. And I was like, yep, that's a first baby for you right there. So yeah, my son was born actually seven days late too. Uh-huh. Yeah. Lillian was born late. Corlin was born early, but he was, uh, I had a lot of trouble with him. He was my first. And so he was born actually six weeks early, which was really hard. But, um, but that the first baby that comes naturally and normally, yeah, they're, they're a solid, uh, they like to stick around. They like to stick around and they turn into like fat little butterballs too. So she apparently had a home birth. I'm not going to tell the story because it's not my story to tell. I don't really know anything about it, but I could tell by the pictures they must've had a home birth. So did you have home births? I didn't. I I wish I had a home birth, but no, they're both in the hospital. But yeah, that's that's super exciting. If I were to have another kid, I would definitely do a home birth. Yeah, it was an experience. I have a lot of, I get turned off by the whole medical system, which I think everybody on the podcast already knows that. But I get turned off by the medical system. I get um, high, high, high anxiety. And the last thing you need when you're trying to birth a baby naturally, especially, is to have a, a bunch of high anxiety. So the best thing for me to do was to... Um, have a home birth. Um, I had a water birth with Lillian. Um, so she was actually born in Taft, Texas, which I think is kind of funny because there was nobody born in Taft, Texas after like, there used to be a hospital over here. Now it's a rehabilitation center just right down here on 631 close to where we are. Um, and so there was a bunch of people that were born in, in Taft back in the, you know, eighties before the, like, like early eighties. And then before that there was a hospital over here, but there's not been anybody born in Taft, Texas since then, except Lillian or somebody that was born like on the side of the road, I guess, <laughs> something like that. So yeah, I think Corpus is the closest hospital from, from here. Yeah. The nearest hospital. Well, it might be, they might birth a baby at the Aransas Pass hospital. There's a small Aransas Pass hospital. Yeah. That hospital is pretty small though. Yeah. But that's probably an emergency situation too. I would imagine. Yeah. So yeah, Corpus Christi. So, I mean, you might as well just have your baby at home if you live way out here in the country. That's what I'm thinking. You live way out at the lake. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're like, but we're not having any more babies. We're not so. 
<laughs> we um I was at the leak this last weekend and um I noticed that the temperatures are ridiculously high. Like the higher than here, which Yeah, I think that has something to do with the humidity. Just yeah. moisture in the air being so close. And yeah. Water is evaporating. I mean, lake levels are just plunging right now. Yeah, true. Yeah, I don't know. But all I, I the, the thing that I can understand is, well, for, I guess there's like the coastal breezes too, because I didn't notice like as much. Yeah, we don't really get that. No. Lake. Yeah. You don't have that breeze. And I think that that makes a huge difference. And so just to make it a lot more comfortable to, I don't know, I've. We've been doing that lake trip because this is a trip that we do every July for my friend Chris's um, birthday. He turned 44 also. He he turns 44 six months after I do every year. Um, and uh, we've been doing that trip for 20 years. And I truly can't think of a summer when it was as hot as it was this year. And I actually had an air conditioned uh, RV to stay in. So it wasn't like I it wasn't like normally we're in a tent. You know, I can't even imagine I would have been, I would have just been the most miserable person. I would have just laid around in the tent the whole time. That's not true. I would have laid around in the water, I guess the whole time. Yeah. We were in the water the yeah. whole time last weekend. Yeah. I didn't get out of the water. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. You said you got kayaks though. Yes. We have two kayaks and then we have a uh, double kayak. So I probably didn't so. mention that you guys live on the lake. So you just recently. We just recently in November. Yeah. Are you directly right on the lake? Yes, we're right yes. on the water. So you can like walk out into the water from your backyard? Yes. Nice. Nice. How is your new home, by the way? Uh, we're really happy with the property. I think the house still needs some improvements. You know, mm -hmm. It's in the 10-year plan. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, one thing at a time, but it'll get there eventually. But we're really happy with the property itself. Almost an acre right on the water. Uh, I mean, there's not much else to say. We've got beautiful trees, lots of shade. That's good. Which was something that was really important to me. Absolutely. Uh, especially with this heat in the summer. Yeah. You, know, you want to be able to get out of the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, and you're homesteaders like we are. So what are some of your thoughts about um, what what you're going to do on an acre on the lake? Like what are, what are, what kind of homesteading stuff? So, are you of course, we have a lot of plants. We are gradually going to be implementing them. Right mm -hmm. now, we're just starting from scratch. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we don't have a garden set up yet. Uh, we brought some potted trees, uh, fruit trees primarily from where we were before, but we haven't even had an opportunity to get them planted and now's not the time to do it. So we're right. going to have to wait probably until the fall to do that. Yeah. Um, I would wait till the spring if it was me, by the way. I just have this, like every time someone tells me they plant things in the fall these days, I'm always like, just wait till the spring. Cause, because, because, I mean, you can go late in the summer. I'm not late in the summer. You can go late in the spring with stuff if you're good at watering through the summertime, but going in the fall or late in the fall and we have one of those hard freeze winters that even if it's just one day of hard freeze winters, you lose that stuff. And right. so I think we've changed down here to the point where I, when I still hear um, like master gardeners and stuff like that, still telling people to plant trees in November, I'm like, don't do it. I'm like, you'll lose those trees. It's more, more likely that you'll lose those trees before you, um, that's my, that's my big gardening advice, by the way. <laughs> that's interesting. Cause don't plant I, uh, the perennials until the springtime. I was under the presumption that you plant your trees in the fall in order for them to develop, develop a root system mm -hmm. so that they can grow quickly. when spring starts. Yeah. The problem with that is, is that we lose them before they've been established. Yeah, we have these erratic freezes. Yep. That yep. You're just, you never know. Yep. 
We lose them before we establish. And you're right. Like that's, I mean, that's what you want. Ideally. Yeah, that's exactly. Ideal. Nothing's ever ideal. So. Yeah, no, that's so, um, and you're, and because you want them to be able to establish their root. Well, so, I mean, okay. So think about it this way instead, right? You're not planting them in spring for spring, you know, that that's what they're doing in the springtime. They're, they're getting their roots in and you need them to get their roots in enough to where they can be healthy during the summertime, because then right. we're about they to deal with deep established roots by that time. Yes. And then they can start to pull water. It's easier, you know, or whatever. And then they'll go through the fall, they'll strengthen in the fall, and then they'll be strong enough in the winter to make it through the winter. And then, yeah. So, okay. yeah, that's a, that's a good approach. I think maybe we will wait until the spring. I, I, I've been, I've been with too many people over the last few years that have had to do replant and replant and replant of tree of perennials for sure. For sure. But, um, but at the same time, I also understand getting like super excited to put things in the ground too. Yes. I, but I've been I, in pots for almost five years now. And of course we carry them in in the winter when it's going to freeze. And you're like, Ooh. But we didn't want to put them in at our previous location because yeah. we weren't sure that we were going to be there permanently. Yep. And so when you spend, you know, $50 on yep. a citrus tree, yep. you don't want to abandon it. Yep. So they've been in pots this whole time. Yep. Well, you're close and you can always experiment and, and not trust me because that's, I'm just somebody that's. The citrus will probably hold off till the spring. Yeah. You know, the peach trees and stuff, they've been through this, through mm -hmm. winters and freezes outside before. So mm -hmm. I think they would be safe to put it in the pole. Well, then the next thing is to mulch the shit out of them and make sure they have plenty of water in the wintertime. <laughs> plenty of irrigation, plenty of water in the wintertime. And then they'll, and then they'll probably be okay. And then the Even last thing we have to move is our chickens and I'm not leaving those behind. Yeah. So they'll be here soon. Are they, so where are they right now? They're at our, at my mom's at our old house in Orange Grove. So we're moving them from Orange Grove to our, to the lake house. I've gotten to have a little bit of the, um, the experience with you guys because you guys came and did, um, your uh, engagement party kind of a surprise i think i ruined the surprise, <laughs> a surprise. Mostly a surprise. yeah was, um we planned out uh, michael and i planned out the uh the engagement party here at the farm and that was a lot of fun i was glad to be able to be a part of that and for you guys to be out here so i i got to see that so that was, it was a great fun. memory it was it was surprise until i saw you know, my family and friends. Everybody. And I was like, okay, what's going on? <laughs> we were like trying to hide from this you. This is not an anniversary party. <laughs> was like, funny. hey, don't run off. She knows you're here already. <laughs> the other thing that I thought was interesting uh, is that you, okay, so when we started cooking tonight, I had to think about vegan. And I knew that there was like, so when we planned the catered event, we did, um, shrimp pants it, I thought, right. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And so, um, I, I couldn't remember like whether you ate eggs or whether you, so tell me what your diet is and, and, and why, cause mine has been about like health and my diet and about not feeling well and all of that kind of stuff. What are the choices with vegan and the kind of the things that you make choices with? What, what's right. that about? Well, basically my diet is kind of a pescatarian, mm -hmm. right? Except I exclude dairy because I'm lactose intolerant. Mm -hmm. So I don't eat any dairy and then no meat, of course, or eggs or chicken. And then, but I slowly, probably three years ago, um, started introducing 
seafood. So mm-hmm. fish, mm-hmm. crawfish, shrimp. And it's for health reasons as well because I want to feel better. Yeah. Um, when I was a teen, I was diagnosed with kidney stones, chronic kidney stones all the time. Mm-hmm. I was in the hospital for five days once. Mm-hmm. And it it's not it doesn't feel good. Right. And I was tired of going to see these doctors mm-hmm. um, telling me what to do. Um, and so I just decided that I'm just going to cut the protein out of my diet and see if that helps. Mm-hmm. Right? Troubleshoot it myself. And I think it's been five years, six years now, and I really haven't had any episodes, maybe one or two. That to me is really important is like hearing people explain that I did this thing and it was a little bit of my own choice because I couldn't really, I wasn't getting the answers that I needed. And so I started playing with my diet and choosing to eat this or that or, you know, and I like, what I like is that it it took me all these many years to get to like the full scale, like, okay, fine, let's just do a full scale elimination. And then we can like read, cause I've learned that peanuts are an issue for me, like a big mm-hmm. issue for me. Well, my God, I, I ate like peanuts, like, you know, I ate peanuts. I just ate them all the time and peanut oil and all, you know, now it's like, if I eat a little bit of peanut, my stomach just like, it's like a hard cramp, not like a, not like a bowel cramp, like a, like it just, it convulses. So that, like what you said, I don't want to feel bad. And I'm like, I don't want to feel bad, you know? And as soon as I start to figure out something makes me feel bad, but there's really only one way to figure that out. And that is to like pull back from things so that when you reintroduce it back into your life, you can see like, you know, how that stuff works and, and, or start to see that the symptoms have reduced or stopped completely. Um, and that's one of the things that's been a huge deal for me is that the symptoms of even like for me, skin things, Mm -hmm. you know, like my skin is different. It actually doesn't have all these little patches all over it. Like it used to have from some of the stuff that I've done. And now that I've been reintroducing a lot of things, because I've even probably since the last podcast, I've begun reintroducing dairy, even raw, raw dairy, raw goat cheese. Um, and now I'm going to have to keep an eye on what happens with my skin, with my headaches, with my, you know, uh, vision. There's even things with my vision that happen. Uh, one of my friends was telling me today that she was, um, getting freaked out because her vision seems to be getting like progressively worse, like really fast. And I said, you know, that, um, that vision is one of the symptom things that happens with autoimmune disorders too. Yeah. And so it could be that your body is, is trying to reject something right now again. And she's very, she, she's, you know, peanut allergy, allergy, you know, same kind of thing. Like she pays a lot of attention to that kind of stuff. And so it's just fascinating that it's fascinating that we grew up this many years without understanding how, how vital it was to understand the food is medicine concept. Right. And my daughter, she has vitiligo. So she has her pigment cells die. That's what vitiligo is. Mm -hmm. And it's also an autoimmune disease. And Mm -hmm. I've just now, she's 15. She's been diagnosed since she was about six. Mm -hmm. And she's, I've just now convinced her that we need to change her diet. And so she said for the summer, she's going to try to be um, vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see if that helps. And if she, you know, stops getting breakouts and um, her skin condition improves. Yeah. And so that's where they, 
like the color loss, like it starts to turn yes. white. Mm-hmm. That's okay. where you have a loss in your pigment and she has like white patches yeah. on her face, on her knees, on her hands. Mm-hmm. And um, so all of these things that we've done, like I could go through a list even before the ones that came up in the recent years, the thyroid stuff that came up in the recent years, but like polycystic ovarian syndrome, ulcerated colitis, like all these things that they told us we had, and then you're going to like give you some medicine. And it's just like this, not terminal, but chronic, chronic thing that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And now I've discovered after changing my diet that all that stuff just went away. Oh yeah. And she refuses to take (laughs) medicine, lotion, pills, like Western medicine, basically. Yeah. So it's been fascinating for me. So I'm glad to be able to have other people that I can talk this stuff out with. Yeah. So when you get into these different types of diets, um, you are really constantly playing with stuff, playing with your recipes and stuff like that. So my weekend trip to the lake this weekend, we, um, everybody, you know, brings some stuff and, and usually, uh, there's somebody that cooks like the meat on the grill, you know, if we do a fresh, if they do a fish fry, um, venison burgers this year, somebody usually cooks chicken or whatever. And I just, I just bow out of things that I'm not interested in eating. So like when they do the big chicken night, I just eat some other stuff. I eat my own food on the venison burger night. I eat a venison patty. I don't eat the bread, you know, but, but I bring food with me to add into the like potluck concept. Yeah. I bring wine. Yeah. You bring wine. <laughs> it's easy. That was that you know, to... alcohol. Yeah. You're like, yeah. Um, so I brought, I bring, I have standards, potato salad, chicken salad. If I'm doing like lunchtime stuff, some kind of salads, basically green salad, fruit salad, potato salad, all the salads. That's like, that's what I bring, but I have to do that stuff differently because I don't use, um, well, I don't mind using Mayo because I eat eggs as long as I make my own Mayo. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. To me nowadays using the, um, coconut yogurt and then just using some oil gets me to the same like consistency of, um, using mayo. And so I did that in, in there. Um, I also put some really pretty red peppers in it. The potatoes were potatoes from my garden and then, you know, some red onions, some pickles, you know, just, uh, boiled eggs. Um, just kind of some of the basic things you would put in a potato salad. Um, I could leave the eggs out. Like I, I could leave the peppers out. I put celery in it. Um, but those are all things that, you know, you'd have to shift around a little bit if you're doing the diet um, as well. Like you probably would just leave the, the eggs. That would have been yeah, a thing. Yeah, just the eggs probably I would leave out. Do you put mayonnaise? I heard you all I mention. I use um, veganese. Okay. So it's a vegan mayonnaise. Veganese is good, actually. It's good. Yeah. It is, actually. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've had a lot of- I'm not vegan, so. A lot of people use um, veganese for making poke bowls because yes. uh, that's like the thing that they do. So then we took that because I had, and I didn't do the thing where I like gave y'all the, like the one that everybody had touched with the spoon and dropped the spoon in it, <laughs> but I had this massive like amount of potato salad left over. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, you guys are adventurous and so I'm making my friends eat leftovers tonight. So, <laughs> so tonight we made potato salad pancakes with the massive amounts of leftover potato salad. But I did that different. The recipe that I pulled up had uh, olive oil and it says Parmesan cheese. And then it calls for all purpose or gluten-free flour and then one egg and then the leftover potato salad, salt, pepper, and then you use sour cream and chives for the top of it. 
And so the differences that we did, and you gave me some advice because first of all, I thought you ate eggs. So that was one of the things that threw me off for the whole, like when you got here, I was like, oh crap, you know, she doesn't eat eggs. Cause I wasn't hundred percent sure. I mean, vegan would mean you don't eat eggs, right. but I knew that you weren't completely vegan because I remember doing the thing and it was shrimp. That's the right. fish, right? Yes. There was actually eggs in the potato salad. And so thank you for being, um, and I, I'm like, oh crap, is it going to make her sick? Cause now that's a whole, cause yeah, like that's the whole point of this is not to make you sick. No, I'm sure it's, it'll salad. be fine. But you gave me some advice with not putting the egg, cause the binder, right? For right. these like patties or whatever that I was making is the flour and the egg and the cheese. That's what's going to make it, you know, right? So I'm leaving the egg out. I'm putting in some other kind of gluten-free flour and I'm not using any Parmesan cheese. So what's going to be the binder? And you gave me the suggestion of using applesauce. Yeah, I use applesauce a lot, especially like if I'm going to be baking or using flour or mm -hmm. some kind of uh, coconut flour. In um, the zucchini bread that we make for the market i use applesauce as mm -hmm. the binder mm -hmm. um, but also i use just egg but the applesauce works really well applesauce was a great answer because i had some unsweetened applesauce that's one of the things that i eat to fill myself regularly like i eat a lot of fruit um and then i used the um nutritional yeast just to kind of give that like parmesan flavor even though we weren't going to have parmesan and then the the gluten-free flour that i chose was tapioca flour but the tapioca flour makes things a little bit gummy. So they were a little bit gummy. And I don't have a ton of experience in the kitchen. I don't have my 10,000 hours yet. Um, so I think I might have like had my oil a little bit too hot. So they were like kind of, they weren't cold on the inside, right? Potato salad. So they weren't cold on the inside, but they were kind of gooey on the inside. And then they were a little overcooked on the outside. What y'all think? I actually think you did a pretty good job for your Aww, first attempt. Thanks. Yeah. I Maybe appreciate that. Maybe a little that. room for improvement. But. Yeah. I think the seasoning wasn't quite there too. Like my potato. Okay. So when I made my potato salad, you know, you taste it and it's like, oh, it's really good. It's got good flavor, but it was a lot of potatoes. And then you put it in the thing and you let it sit and absorb all the flavors and everything like that. And then when I went to dig in to eat the potatoes, they just didn't have a lot of flavor. So now I'm like, oh, I didn't put enough you know, of the seasoning and I put mustard in my potato salad too, by the way. And yes, I put Dijon too. I love the mustard and I like that tartness. That's the way I don't like a sweet potato mm -hmm. salad. I like a tart potato salad. So I don't think my potato salad had enough flavor. And then I think just adding a little bit more seasoning in probably would have made them a little bit. They just, they were kind of boring and gooey. <laughs> yeah. Maybe sub a, a different type of flour. Yeah. Um, Maybe almond flour or coconut flour would have been good. I had arrowroot, coconut, and tapioca. Those are the three that I use because um, in the AIP stuff, it, um, no uh, nuts oh, for a while. Oh, you're off nuts. That's right. Well, I am now. I'm eating them. I'm back to eating them again. I mean, I eat cashews no again. Peanuts. No peanuts for sure. But um, but the peanuts are not technically a nut, so they're in a kind of a different. They're a legume. Ooh, that's interesting. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, they're they're a legume, right? So, um, but I am eating legumes too. So it just so happens that peanuts just happen to be. But I haven't dug into almonds yet to even know whether. But I'm sure they'll be fine once I probably go back into it. But that would be interesting as a flower for that type of thing because it would be a little bit like you said, crunchier, a little bit uh, grainier, you know, more mm -hmm. like a corn flour. Right. 
Yeah, I think that would be really good. But either way, you guys, this was a really good way to use leftover potato salad. That's no, the most that. important part of it. And so if you're trying to feed your kids leftover potato salad, fry them up in some potato salad pancakes. And uh, so this recipe was really good. And it was super simple. Once I got it, it was like make a ball, put it in your in your, in your oil. Uh, it said medium high heat. I ended up turning my heat down even less than that because it was kind of, you know how when you're making your pancakes and the first run of them are like either undercooked or overcooked and then finally you get the right temperature and then you like have all the perfect pancakes, you know, well, that's kind of how you have to do it with the potato salad pancakes too. So I, I, burnt, I, I overburned them. I overburned them a little bit. So that was good. And then we also made a grilled okra salad. So it was a real pretty plate, a real good summer plate, covered the bottom of the plate with my traditional arugula spinach mix, salad mix type stuff, put the um, potato salad pancakes in this recipe, the grilled okra salad recipe. So it was a, like a really simple recipe in that it was the fresh tomatoes from the garden, the fresh red onion from the garden. And then the recipe called for a white wine vinegar, but I've got that good red wine vinegar. So we put the red wine vinegar um, in it and threw that in the fridge so it could get, you know, seasoned up. And then um, Michael charred the um, okra on my skillet on my stove. And so they got a nice char on them and seasoned them up, put them on top of the salad and had some delicious uh, dreamsicle, I think, cantaloupe or something like that. Dream melon. I don't know. It was another one of those like fancy hybrid melons that has like a super sugary. Yeah, it was sweet. super sweet. It was really sweet. I like that. So, and those, the prices on those are not super bad right now. They're in the same range as almost everything else. I think I might've paid two or three and they're usually like one or two right now when they're in season. Mm. So, um, so that's a fairly inexpensive, like candy treat when you're eating those. And then of course, last week we had, um, mead because I had Lee on and Lee brought mead and I sampled y'all's mead last week. So then you came back, we had another run of mead, but now I've got mead makers in the house. <laughs> so now I need to know, okay, how do we make this mead that we're talking about here? And what did you think about the mead? I gave, I, you didn't get any of the coffee mead, which was the one that we uh, taught. We hadn't, I hadn't tasted the coffee mead when we talked about it on the podcast last week. And then I had a taste of it after dinner and we drank a sip of it and it was so freaking good that I drank it all over the weekend. It was really tasty. We actually have a whole bottle of that same coffee mead at home. Really? From, from the same guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I want more. Like I, like seriously, you guys, you're like, no, it's James really, James it's that. really good. Yeah. So you, so when we were talking about it on the podcast, you knew like, you're like, I know that coffee mead. I know that person. I know that. You yeah. Know. Michael James, uh, with river bottom beast. He's the one that produced that mead. Uh -huh. and, uh, he was our mentor when we started making mead as well. So nice. Well, it, that was really good. And then, so I, so we had your meat again tonight, and then you guys got a chance to taste the other one that was the lavender hibiscus or whatever. And so what were y'all's thoughts of, like, the flavor of... I actually really liked it. It did have some, like, maple syrup tones. Mm -hmm. It had some tea, some kind of dragon fruit tea or something in mm -hmm. it. Um, it was a little bit higher APV than mm -hmm. a traditional, like, ours. Yours uh, is the honey water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ours is a low a APV. So. I think it's really crisp and clean though, because Drinkable. as I was drinking your stuff again tonight, I'm actually sipping on it right now. It's like, it's really nice. But then the first thing you said when I told you all I drank a bunch of it at the river, I mean, at the lake or whatever, 
was like, oh, did you, I bet you got a little tipsy before you realized it. And I was like, I probably did. How do you keep up with the ABV of that? Because I have no idea. So when you start the process of making mead and you, you mix your must, which is basically the honey that's been heated up with water, mm-hmm. you let that cool to room temperature, you put it in a fermenting vessel and you add your yeast. At that time, you'll take an initial gravity with a mm-hmm. hydrometer, mm-hmm. which basically just looks like a big thermometer mm-hmm. uh, and it kind of floats at a value. Mm-hmm. And then when you're done fermenting, you take that a new reading with that hydrometer mm-hmm. and then you're able to calculate your APV from those, ah. those two numbers. Hmm. Okay. I just had another sip of it and I'm like, it's so crisp and clean and delicious, which by the way, y'all brought me some of the honey from the farm that I got to taste um, tonight. And I'm very happy with the fragrant floral taste of the honey that's coming off of the how, So how many jars did y'all end up with from, from this? So five we have pints. five pints. Five yeah. pints. And that was from about three and a half frames. Uh-huh. So normally a whole super would be 10 frames. Uh-huh. So that's about a third of what you should get from a whole super. Mm-hmm. Now, this is our first time harvesting. Yeah. So that's why we didn't want to take too much. And uh, mm-hmm. there was some brood that was mixed in because we didn't have a queen excluder on the on the hive. Okay. So the queen was able to get up there and lay eggs in the, in the honey super. Got it. So one of the things we'll do next time mm-hmm. we come and, and mess with the bees is we'll we'll add a queen excluder and we'll probably add another super on top of the one that's on there currently. Michael and Crystal are the beekeepers that have hives here at Freedom Harvest Farms. Um, and so when you hear us talking about the hives that we have here and the honey that's coming off, these are the beekeepers that keep up with that and um, and keep my little bees all happy. Our little bees all happy. Well, you keep them happy with the flowers. I'm, I love, I love my bees. I mean, I talk to them. I like, I'm like, so how's it going back there at the back of the pasture? Are you guys having this house nice and warm in your new home? Are you? <laughs> I'm sure they're plenty warm right now. Yeah, I'm sure they are too. <laughs> yeah. So it was really nice to be able to taste some different meads um, and then from to hear from you guys about how that's working out and then they get to have a little bit more of that again. I love, okay, so currently I'm really not drinking anything that's not being made by my friends or at the farm. I'm drinking farm wine. I drank mead over the weekend. I mean, I had a little sips of some ranch water and stuff like that too, but generally like I, and I, I love that about just being, I don't know, like the idea that you could, that in a worst case scenario, we can make our own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, make our own booze. We can make our own. I love that. And you know. sharing is caring. So yeah. <laughs> I want to know a little bit more. So if I wanted to take the honey that I have, like the honey you guys brought me and make mead for myself here at home, because sharing is caring especially when you're making home brew. <laughs> That's right. Um, tell me how to make it. Tell me how a home person can just make themselves a batch of mead. So what you'll do is you'll take a, a fermentation vessel mm-hmm. and you're going to want to sanitize that mm-hmm. thoroughly. And you'll take uh, a little bit less than half a gallon of water. Mm-hmm. And to that, you'll put it on the stove, mm-hmm. add two to three pounds of honey. Mm-hmm. And then you'll cook that over medium heat until it reaches around 180 degrees, so just below boiling. Mm-hmm. And your goal there is to dissolve all of those sugars from the honey uh-huh. into that water. Okay. And then once you do that, then you'll put it in your thoroughly sanitized fermentation vessel. Generally, it's like a carboy. 
mm-hmm. um, and you'll add an airlock. Uh, well, you'll add your yeast and then you'll add your airlock and you let it go for how long? About a month. Okay. Um, it depends on how much the sugar content of the honey and your how much honey you used and also the alcohol tolerance of the yeast that you introduced. Mm-hmm. So some yeasts have a, a lower alcohol tolerance, like around 13, 14%. Some go as high as 22%, and that's going to affect your ABV as well. Okay, so how do you stop the fermenting? You put it in the fridge, just kind of like you do with kombucha? Or no, whatever? generally you use uh, something like a Camden tablet to kill the yeast that's still fermenting. Uh-huh. But a lot of times, um, like ours was... R- we fermented all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably fermented for about two months and it went completely dry. There was no sugars left. Okay. So we ended up having to back sweeten because we weren't really after like a dry mead. Okay. Uh, so we back sweetened. But once it got, the, the yeast ate all the sugars that mm-hmm. were in that must. Mm-hmm. And so you'll know when it's done fermenting with your by using your hydrometer. You'll, you'll take a couple of measurements every day, and if it's not fluctuating, uh-huh. if it's stable and it stays consistent, then you know that you're done. The gotcha. fermentation is completed. So it's fairly simple. It just takes a few tools. Like, there's a few little tools you need yeah, to have Yeah, it's actually there. pretty simple. Yeah. Um, and you, I noticed you keep it in the fridge. Why do you, why do you keep it in the fridge? Is it, will it go uh, bad? That was really just a, a precaution uh-huh. because if, for whatever reason, there is still fermentation going on. Uh-huh. And since we back sweetened, we weren't completely 100% sure mm-hmm. that there wasn't fermentation continuing. Mm-hmm. And if you leave it out, then you have the potential of it building pressure and exploding, basically, the bottle exploding. That's not fun. And so, you you know, keep it in the fridge slows the fermentation. If there is any fermentation going mm-hmm. on, it slows it down. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I just like cold meat. So leave him a message. Hopefully he'll get back with you. There is a website through the um, Texas A&M University, mm-hmm. um, and they list registered bee removal individuals mm-hmm. um, by county because you do have to have a um, a permit a permit to move bees from one county to another in okay. the state of Texas. Okay, and so there is a list by counties if you look up um, bee removal. In Texas, just yeah, Google it. It's on it. the AgriLife website for mm-hmm. Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. And you should be able to find uh, someone in your area who can do removals. Yeah, because I, I mean, I, I know that it's going to be a thing where it's like, it's not that we don't want to rescue the, the bees. It's just that it's a, you know, it's a. Yeah, what it really came down to for me was liability. Uh-huh. Uh, when we ran into a couple of Africanized highs, you know, we were not a big enough business to right. to yeah. carry liability insurance. Yeah. And I was I was concerned about someone else getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, I was con- a little bit concerned for my own safety as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just didn't make a lot of sense for us to continue down that path yeah. without really investing a lot of time and effort into getting all the appropriate insurances mm-hmm. and uh, setting up a an LLC or something like that so we're not liable ourselves. Right, and, right. And uh, But you are still venturing down the path of keeping bees. And so... Yeah, we, we enjoy beekeeping. Uh, I think we'll probably continue to do that. We've downsized a little bit from what we were mm-hmm. because when we were doing removals, of course, we had a lot of hives. Yeah, because um, you're collecting bees that you need to do yeah, something and, with. Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't have the time to manage 12 hives. Mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a couple here we have a couple at our house and i we're, we're going to try to stay 
more hobbyist than, okay. than, a, than a business per se. Okay. So you're really just down to that. Like you've got these, Correct. yeah. Oh, well, I'm so grateful that you're, that we still got him here. And I guess some, I keep saying that someday I'm going to get brave enough to decide to like, um, learn how to take care of myself. Yeah, whenever you're ready, we'll suit you up and I'll teach you a few things. I'm sure that I'll be ready for that someday. <laughs> I'm certain that I am. So tell me a little bit about like the whole process. It's a somewhat evolved process. Um, you know, beekeeping is not as easy as it initially seems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you have to you have to maintain the hive. You have to check on them uh, regularly. You have to make sure that they have adequate space, that they are getting enough um, of the resources that they need, mm-hmm. and you also you know are combating diseases and pests just like you are in a garden. Mm-hmm. And if uh, all the gardeners know that sometimes it's difficult, you know, and, and you don't always um, get a bountiful harvest every year, mm-hmm. you know, you may run into to something that was unexpected. And so it's just so then you learning how to manage those things <laughs> and, and learning how to, you know, get the hive to a point where they're healthy and they're, they're, they're able to flourish and they're able to provide enough resources for themselves and also a little bit extra for us. Mm-hmm. So how are our hives doing back there in the back? What do you think about, cause they've only been out here for just over a year now, right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, yeah, how I think, are those um, looking? So I, my initial idea when I brought those two hives over there, uh, over here was I had one hive that was kind of struggling at my place. They were uh, somewhat of a weaker hive. Um, I think they were having difficulty completing with all the other hives that I had on, on that property. Um, and I brought a strong hive because I wanted to make sure that, you know, um, you would eventually get some get some honey out of the deal, right? Right. So the weak hive is doing a lot better than it was at my place. Uh, it's still the weaker of the two. Uh, it's 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 kind of dragging its feet as far as getting uh, getting established and being productive in the in the in the honey for us sense. Mm-hmm. But like, so they like had just managing... enough honey for themselves, but Correct. they didn't have enough. So that you only pulled off of one. Of I the only two pulled hives. off the stronger of the two hives. Mm-hmm. Um, and we only pulled three frames uh, this year. I hoping that next year we'll be able to pull a full super, mm-hmm. uh, which is 10 frames. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's around 70 pounds of honey. Mm-hmm. So, and how does that work? You pull the, so like one thing you gave me, um, what do you call the piece? What I gave you was just a bare frame of uh-huh. honey and some of it wasn't capped. So some of that really floral stuff that you tasted that uh-huh. first day uh-huh. and you're like, wow, this is really floral. Uh-huh. That's probably because um, it hadn't gone through the whole process yet. And so oh. it was still nectar. Some of it oh, was still nectar. Oh, well, that makes perfect sense because it tasted like nectar. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. And, and it, that's one of the reasons we didn't bottle that is because uh-huh. uh, you have to make sure your moisture content is like below... 18 or 16 percent uh-huh uh, otherwise you have the possibility that the, it'll ferment okay you don't want that. yeah you'll be making mead without realizing it <laughs> yeah and it was and it was kind of drippy too mm-hmm. like so that makes right. sense yeah but it was like you know chewing on the yet. chewing on the honeycomb you know and i i i think i've i mean i literally took like every little bat list drop that i could take from that and used it on salads and used it like everywhere i could come up with using it and it was really tasty i was enjoying it so i'm looking forward to the honey that you guys i got a little bit of the spoils my mom told me this morning i better not bogart the honey that she wants some of that honey (laughs) so she'll be ready to have it already this uh 
and and now I'm like wondering because this is hot, honey, right off of our pollen right here. Right. So this is our allergy, honey. <laughs> this is our our good. Like I need a a teaspoon of it every day, so it won't last me very long. But um, then I'll be like just eating it out of the out of the jar. But um, yeah, and something unique about this honey is that uh, we didn't feed sugar syrup uh-huh. this entire time. So this is all 100% natural uh-huh. um, from nectar collected. It's Yay. not sugar water that's been feeding that they've then put in yeah. in the cells and, and dehydrated for you. And I work very actively to grow a lot of flowers all over my gardens because of pollinators not even having to do with the fact that I have bees, although I want my bees to have it as well. And I'm hoping that this next year I'm going to be able to get um, more seeds with flowers growing in the pasture too, so that I'll have a lot more flowers. I want to, the grass that's growing up here in the front property is a, is beautifully diverse. I have different stuff growing every month of the year. There's a new flower, a new kind of grass growing. That's awesome. It, it, it's amazing to me. Like I have mimosas right now out there or mm-hmm. mimosa, not mimosas. I'm, I'm drinking myself some mimosas, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's funny to be able to see like during the winter, you know, the stuff that I see. And then, um, you know, I've got, I, I, I have hairy vetch that grows pretty much everywhere and that's toward the cooler season, toward the early spring. And then that dies back. And then I've got, you know, and there's just all these different phases and a lot of the, the grasses that are growing up here in the front actually have flowers on them. Right. And I so, think that's really important for the bees. Yeah. Um, you know, to have something that they're able to forage from year round. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, in urban beekeeping, when you have a traditional grass lawn, mm-hmm. um, you only have flowers available in the spring and the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the in the wild, in nature, you know, mm-hmm. there's flowers blooming every month of the year. Yep. And so I think that might be what's helping to contribute to the loss of some of the native bees is just you know, all the urbanization is, mm-hmm. has made foraging in certain parts of the year a lot more difficult for these bees. Well, so, okay. Thinking about the ones that like go into the walls and, you know, go in, what does somebody even do it? You know, if they can't, I mean, can, is it possible that they'll move on or once they've moved in, are they permanent? Like once they've established comb, Mm-hmm. they're they're there that's their home mm-hmm. so um now if they're just hanging out on a tree branch mm-hmm. you know they're probably going to move on mm-hmm. but if they have already established that they're starting to make comb then they're gonna they yeah you need to get rid of them yeah or move them do you think that we're in a real like crisis like we're really losing our honeybees i i don't think so that it's honeybees that are in danger so much it is the native mm-hmm. populations of bees mm-hmm. um you know bees because they're commercialized mm-hmm. um you know just like pigs and cows and chickens aren't in any danger of um you know going extinct i i don't right. think the honeybee is either because it's okay. uh, yeah you know, because humans are managing it mm-hmm. there's a lot of scientists and stuff out there that are researching um treatments for the diseases and the the pests like the varroa mite Mm-hmm. that um, are are plaguing the honeybee and, and has resulted in the decline of the honeybee in the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but the natives, all the different kinds of it's natives. It's the natives that are, that are really in danger. And the, and the biodiversity. The di- and the biodiversity. Of all mm-hmm. different kinds of things. Or, right. So all the pollinators are losing. There's, there's hundreds of species of bees. Yeah. Um, 
but all you really hear about in the media is is the honeybee because that's right what's important for us humans because we like honey and we need we require them for pollination and there's certain things certain vegetables that won't be pollinated without Correct, that, yeah. that particular but the, but it's also the same way with other there's other types native of natives bees. that only pollinate right. certain vegetables and you like can't squash figure out. bees for example yeah exactly i specialize in pollinating squash well it gets me thinking about how the second that there's some caterpillars that come out everybody goes out and sprays and kills everything and i'm like I'm, I'm I'm like that's a part of the the pollinator native pollinator population right. that we need. So and I'm I'm like there's really simple solutions to this like the sunflowers that we will that everybody's like oh you got to come down because they're they're weedy and they're ugly and whatever I'm like that the answer to our pollinator issue the answer to a lot of our problems is actually sunflowers believe it or not I'm like sunflowers are so important and the the sweetness of that flower draws in everything and my sunflowers got knocked out this year by um i don't someone corrected me the other day and told me exactly what it was but a variety a tiny little um uh black caterpillar yeah black oh, black yeah. caterpillar I, I don't little, know the name of them but i know i'm familiar with them. and it's an important pollinator you know and it and it eats it was eating up my sunflowers and i was like no that's exactly why the sunflowers are there that's why i want to leave you know there and then i had this just like massive population of pollinators that came that were on my property and that came off my property over here and that's an important all of those pollinators are important the biodiversity of pollinators is just as important as Oh, well, we've got to keep this particular, because I consider honeybees like livestock, kind of like you said, like right. the pigs and the, you know, it's kind of that same kind of concept that it's just livestock. So I think that more than anything else, I think that um, part of the reason why I, I so much like to bring beekeepers into conversations and have real conversations, maybe not so much digging into like, how does somebody keep bees? Because most people aren't going to do that. But the idea is that if we can talk to people about like the realities, like First question I get when I tell somebody I'm an organic farmer, organic gardener is, where do you get your genetically, your seeds that aren't genetically modified? And I'm like, dude, there's like a whole thing you need to understand about how they're not selling you <laughs> genetically modified seeds, by the way. Like you're not like, and, and there's so much you need to understand about that whole process that that's not something for you to even worry about, but it's a catchphrase, you know? And if I have, if I'm going to tell somebody what the important part of it is, the important part that people need to understand is, is that they're, um, they are, what's the word I'm looking for here? They own the seed. What's that called? Um, They've uh, uh, licensed, trademarked. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Proprietary. That's right. Yeah, yes, basically, like they own the rights to that seed if right. they modify it in a lab, right? right? So that's the biggest problem with genetically modified seeds. But they're not selling you that. They're selling big farmers those seeds, and so there. And there's a hybridization, and then there's within the hybridization, which then it's like, oh, well, if you're using hybridization fruit, same kind of thing. Well, I'm like, no. The other the thing to understand about hybridization is is that number one with hybridization you end up with fruits that don't have seeds and at what point do we get to the point where we don't have seeds anymore right that's one thing but then in addition to that the same concept of once somebody hybridizes something they own the right to the seed right and so that's the only problem with hybridization not because plants hybridize without us being involved in yeah it. that was a comment that i was going to make is people have been you know, genetically modifying plants yeah. and animals for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, that's how we ended up with all these different breeds of dogs and, yeah. and yeah. 
you know, cauliflower and broccoli and Brussels sprouts yeah, are, are all, all the same yeah. thing, actually. Yeah. The, po the poodle. <laughs> yeah. The poodle is one of those. Yeah, no, that's exactly how that stuff works. And so yeah, I, I think that that's my point about saying that like there's the, the general like mass media uh, understanding about some of this stuff is, it's is pretty. Yeah, totally. And now, and now we're all woke to understanding what's up with pollinators. I'm like, no, you're not. Like, you don't have any idea. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to put you down. I'm saying you probably need to talk to some beekeepers, you know, or you probably need to talk to some gardeners, or you probably need to talk to some people that actually have their hands in the dirt in that subject, rather than somebody that's using that as a catchphrase to sell something to you. Yeah. It's like the Africanized bees and the killer bees stories from you know, 10 or 15 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, the media was really driving the, the killer beast story. Mm -hmm. Um, and you and saw that more recently with the, bees. Uh, yeah, exactly. And yeah. then you saw that more recently with the, uh, the Japanese giant hornet murder hornets or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So tell me, um, your name, the name of your business is Gulf Grove farm, Gulf Grove farm. And how do people find you and where are you at? They can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, if they want to order something, they can order it online. Send us a message, and then what all kinds of things are you carrying when you like? What do you? What can someone buy from you? We we go to the local Saturday farmers market mm -hmm. every Saturday. They That's have the Corpus from, Christi market mm -hmm, in, and on, on Everhart, Everhart. Mm -hmm. right? And so we have a variety of stuff. Uh, most everything we have is vegan, except of course the eggs. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have vegan zucchini bread. We have vegan cilantro sauce. And then we have a whole section of habanero jam. So if you love spicy jam, uh -huh. we have fig that we got from yes, you. Yes, I was going to say, what did you do with the figs? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. We also harvested uh, wild grapes, uh -huh. wild Mustang grapes. And so we have a wild Mustang grape jelly. Nice. That That's we, good. Um, Everybody likes that. Made. It's really good. Mm-hmm. And, and really, it's really tricky to make because um, Mustang grapes are very tart. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's it's really tricky to have the right amount of sugar mm -hmm. to the tartness. Mm-hmm. Nice. So here's the next part where we do the random question of the week. And um, I've got... I actually have five cards in my hand right here. I kind of, I just look them over to make sure they're not some really random weird question that we, nobody would want to answer. Um, but then I kind of mix it up and I'll let you draw so that you can find a good question for us. All right. What did you find right. us? What would you do to avoid fighting in a war you disagree with? Michael, you go first. We're going off grid, baby. <laughs> I think all of our answers is, this is the thing that happens with me when I come to the dinner table with people. It's like, yeah. That's a really tricky one because I'm, I'm not ex real sure what you can do uh, if a draft or something is implemented other than. What is the question again? What would you do to avoid fighting in a war you disagreed with? Well, yeah, if there's a draft, but I. I don't even know anymore. Otherwise What's the answer is the world. don't enlist. Yeah. Don't get involved. Don't get involved. I don't fight. Wait, I have fought, <laughs> but I'm not interested. It's funny because I remember one time, this has been easily a decade ago. Um, we were having a conversation with my best friends talking about this kind of stuff. And, um, one of them was like, I'm going down a guns a blazing, <laughs> you know, like guns in the air. And I was like, yeah, I'm not a going down guns a blazing kind of girl, you know, 
but I will protect my family. You know what I mean? See, I don't think about like getting involved in the war. I would never get involved in it. Like I would never purposefully go out and get involved in it. I think we'd just mind our business. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I think I would protect my land and I would protect my space and I would um, pray that none of my children wanted to get involved in it. And um, yeah, which is different if you think about like, I mean, of course we're watching, watching movies, but if you're watching movies, it's like, like it was like an honor for your children to go get involved in the wars and stuff like that, you know? And now I'm like, Oh God, that's the last place I want my kids to go. If we're doing anything like that. I mean, I would consider myself to be pretty patriotic. Um, yeah, but I don't know that there's any war that I would agree with per se. Um, so that's kind of a tricky question in today's world. And it doesn't come to our doorstep like it did like, you know, in civil war and, you know, stuff like that. It's going to be AI and drones the next war. I'm sure. Ugh, I don't even want to think about it. Like, I'm not interested in the ancient battle. Like, I th- I feel like I I'm past that in my like spiritual like you know I'm I'm just I'm I'm yeah I I would say I'm an Amer I mean I'm I'm patriotic I'm an American I'm American <laughs> I'm definitely American <laughs> I got asked the other day like do you call it the United States United States of America U S and I was like, I think I call it America. And I know we're wrong. I know we get corrected now for saying America. Is that North, Central, yeah. South? <laughs> Which one? Like, technically, you're the United States of, what are we the United States of? America. I don't know. Technically, we're a corporation and we are laborers to a corporation. That's <laughs> technically what we are, by the way, in case anybody's been paying attention. So thank you guys so much for coming. It was I, so wow. fun. We really enjoyed it. I always appreciate you guys when you come around. Um, I love that like you came in the gate. I was like, oh, they got the code. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, they're like the inner crowd. So Thank you guys for coming to the dinner table like you always do. I appreciate you all so much. It is so much fun to watch um, such a great interest in the podcast with each new people that are coming out to have dinner with me and their friends that come to the table and then to watch how their friends are now jumping back to go listen to other friends. And that's a lot of fun too. So if you're checking out this podcast for the first time, thank you so much for being here. Please share it with a friend if you've enjoyed it. Um, If you prefer to listen to things on YouTube, uh, you can go over to YouTube. You're going to get, uh, at least this last season's episodes are up on YouTube. And if you're interested in supporting the work that I do, because it's definitely some, it's definitely a challenge. It's definitely, I'm keeping up with it and doing dinner and all the things and, um, and, and keeping a podcast running, Go over to the podcast show notes page. That's dinnertabletalks.com. Up at the top of the page, there's an option to support the podcast. And that's a way that you can just tell me, yes, Aislinn, we love what you're doing. And we want you to be able to keep doing it because, you know, we've got to buy $7 a dozen eggs these days. So I'll see you all very soon. I love you. Thanks for joining me at the dinner table.